Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you again, needy and dependent, asking for your grace and asking for your mercy upon this time together. We ask, Lord, that you would use your word in the lives of your people. I ask that I would be clear with what you have to say this morning through the scriptures. And God, I pray that we would all strive to live by faith in the lessons we have to learn. We thank you for your grace, for the ongoing kindness that you show to us in Christ and through your word and through your church. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, there are times in our Christian lives that I think we all could associate with, times when, when we can expect that there's going to be a spiritual battle, times when we can anticipate a battle that's coming. We expect times of deep trial to, to test our faith in challenging ways. We know that during times when there's hostility from the culture, whether it be in the workplace or whether it be in the wider culture or maybe with a neighbor or maybe even family members or extended family members, we know that when there's hostility coming, there will be great temptation towards compromise. We're not surprised when, when living by faith is costing us earthly comforts that we're tempted to capitulate in those times. We expect that in the face of scary times, we're going to have to fortify our faith and our trust in God. These are times that over the course of our Christian lives, we've come to know and expect temptations and battles. But I think perhaps the times in which we can be the most vulnerable in our spiritual lives are the times when we don't see the enemy coming. The times when perhaps we might be tempted to think that we're on safe ground and in peacetime, so to speak. The times we don't expect the spiritual battle that we suddenly find ourselves in. A specific type of time that I have in mind here this morning is the, the times right after great spiritual victories. Perhaps you've noticed this in your own personal Christian walk. Have you ever been caught off guard by a great spiritual battle that comes right on the heels of a great time of spiritual success? <laughs> time when you trusted in the Lord and trusted in his word and, and moved against temptations and turned away from it, and suddenly you find yourself in an unexpected battle. You seem to think as if that battle shouldn't come on the heels of those great moments of faith. Times when you face down a serious area of temp temptation, when you've chosen to live by faith in a costly way, when you've trusted God in some great trial. You've just scaled the cliff wall. You, you've made it to the top, and you've, you've tasted that crisp, fresh air of the spiritual mountaintop that, that you're now on. And we would tend to think in that moment, finally, the battle is over, right? I've made it. We tend to think that we can stay up there in that spiritual high forever. But only to find out that the the deepest storms of temptation oftentimes come upon us at the highest spiritual altitudes. I think of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19. Right after that incredible moment on Mount Carmel, you guys know it well, there he is. He's standing against the, the prophets of Baal, the 400 prophets of Baal. He's, he's standing against all of the, the nation of Israel. He's standing against the, the king and his, his rampaging, psychotic wife, right? He's standing against all enemies that come against him. And he's standing for the Lord alone. 
calls down fire from heaven. (laughs) Man, great moment of just spiritual mountaintop, unbelievable what the Lord did in that moment. And then in the very next paragraph of the word of God, (laughs) we find Elijah, it says literally, running for his life out of fear of a threat from Jezebel. Spiritual mountaintop, spiritual temptation. Peter, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 35, telling Jesus, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you, right? Three years of following after Christ, three years of learning and growing under Christ, three, three years of finding himself battling temptations, and now here he is at the moment of Christ's greatest need, and Peter is ready to give it all for Christ, right? Then by the end of that very night, he finds himself denying Christ three times and bringing curses down upon himself. This is why we read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 this morning. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Beware, Paul would say. Be careful of the times when you're on the spiritual mountaintop. Be careful of those times when you've had great victory. Be careful of those times when you think you stand, when you think you can handle life and what's around you, because after all, look at all the faith you've exhibited in past seasons. Beware, Paul would say, when you think you stand, because those are the moments when temptations will come. We must recognize that often the greatest defeats can come on the heels of the greatest victories. You cannot ride on the coattails of yesterday's faith and expect it to carry you through today's temptation. That is exactly what we're going to see this morning in the life of David. We'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 27 primarily this morning. And we'll find there that that David just had a, a great spiritual success, a great victory in his faith. David, in the last chapter, if you remember the context here in 1 Samuel, he, he had had an opportunity to kill King Saul. Saul, of course, had by this point in the book become a jealous, paranoid, murderous, conspiring maniac of a king. He, he had turned on David for, for no reason except his own rebellion against God's hand of blessing being upon David. Saul, because of his own sin and had the kingdom ripped away from him, he knew that God was going to do that. God had already told him he was going to do that. And Saul, in his jealousy and in his zeal to want to keep the earthly gain of the kingship in his own hands and within his own family, turns on David. He attempted to kill him. He forced him from his home. He chased him down like a dog. By by this point in the book, he'd been doing this for many years. David's only choice was to wander from cave to cave in the Judean wilderness, running for his life from this murderous rage of Saul, who it appears would not rest until David was dead. And then incredibly, in chapter 26, Saul is literally served up to to David on a silver platter. (laughs) There he is, sleeping in what would appear to be a supernatural sleep. David and his men can sneak right up into the camp. He has a moment. All he has to do is take up the spear, right? And turn on Saul. 
wouldn't have even been a fight. What an opportunity for David from the the fleshly, earthly standpoint. I mean, this could mean the end of all of his struggles. If if Saul were dead, then no doubt David's good friend Jonathan would would have rolled out the red carpet to welcome David back, and, and David would be on the fast track to becoming king. This is how David could have easily reasoned in chapter 26. Yet David, in a moment of great faith, chose not to touch God's anointed king. He chose instead to trust God for his security, to trust God for his future, and he refused to take matters into his own hands. What a, what a great moment of faith. I mean, this is the type of thing. Coming out of chapter 26, you're reading this chapter, and you're just going, man, if only I could have a fraction of the faith of David in that moment. I, I don't know how I do, right, if I were faced with those same circumstances. David's faith were compared to a great spiritual journey. Then coming out of chapter 26, he has just climbed the summit of Mount Everest, friends. It's from that great mountaintop that we find David suddenly plunged into a deep valley of temptation. We'll see David going from a moment of great faith to a moment of great failure. And so our aim this morning as we come to chapter 27, it's not, I'll warn you ahead of time, it's not one of the most encouraging chapters in the Bible, right? <laughs> but it's an important one. And our aim this morning will be to learn from David's mistakes. So we're going to watch, watch here as David takes three dives down the slippery slope of self-trust. Three dives down the slippery slope of self-trust. And beloved, as we watch David's fast descent into this dark spiritual valley, I want each of you to see, see more than just the facts from David's life here. What we really need to do with, with stories like this in the scriptures is, is to see this as a warning for our own life, to recognize that if David, a man of great faith, a man after God's own heart, if, if he could find himself on this slippery slope, then we're no better. And we need to protect ourselves from going down the same path. Let's look together at this first dive down this slippery slope in David's life. And that is simply this, a decision driven by a lack of faith. David makes a decision driven by a lack of faith. Look at what he says in verses 1 through 4. Then David said to himself, Now I will perish one day. By the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul then will despair of searching for me anymore in all the territory of Israel, and, and I will escape from his hand. So David arose, crossed over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived in Achish at Gath, he and his men, each with his household, even David with his two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. Now it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he no longer searched for him. 
There's nothing really complex to the way that this story begins. There's no elaborate temptations here. There's no sneaky trap that that Satan sets for David that he never could have seen coming. There's not even new circumstances in David's life that catch him by surprise. In fact, at the end of chapter 26, David finds himself in exactly the same place he has been for many years now. Still on the run, still in the wilderness, still waiting on God to fulfill his promises. Nothing has changed in David's life. We're reminded by that, that sometimes those are the toughest times, aren't they? The times when the trial just continues. The times when relief eludes your grasp. The times when there's no end in sight. You see, friends, David is really facing nothing new here. It was the same temptation he had just faced that very same day, and the day before that, and the day before that, and the day before that one. So what happens in David's life? Well, he's faced with the same temptation you and I are faced with in those times. Am I going to continue in the faith, right? Am I going to continue in this moment, in this day's new set of of temptations, as I meet this day's potential areas where I could go astray, am I going to meet those tests with faith or am I going to meet them with anything else? (laughs) That was the crossroads David found himself in. And this whole scenario, everything we're about to see in chapter 27 and chapter 28 all comes down to this one moment where David, at the very beginning, seems to make a very small decision that lacked faith. A very small decision. He yielded in a moment of weakness. You can see that David's in the throes of temptation here. Right away in verse 1. The text says, David said to himself, Now I will one day perish by the hand of Saul. Here we're given a glimpse into David's inner monologue. <laughs> that, that phrase, David said to himself. Literally, you could translate it this way. David said to his heart. <laughs> this was what David was preaching to himself. This is what he was telling himself to believe. It's scary to think about, but this entire slippery slope that David finds himself on in this chapter goes back to this very simple issue in his heart. David chose to believe the wrong thing. And man, beloved, that that gives us some warnings, doesn't it? Even as we think about our own lives, the, the times in our life where we're tempted to turn from the clear teaching of God's word. The time when God's word and the implications from it and, and, and the ways that we should wisely apply that to our lives when we want an easier path, when we look for a different road it may be less costly. That's all it took in David's life. David's life. His faith was wavering. And remember, David knew very well from the events described all the way back in chapter 16 that God had promised him that he would one day be king. I mean, he was there. <laughs> he was there when Samuel anointed him. He he heard the words that Samuel spoke, 
Samuel was a proven and established prophet in the nation of Israel. He knew that this man spoke on behalf of God, and he made it clear that he was God's future choice to reign over Israel. Furthermore, remember that David had that promise from God reiterated multiple times through Jonathan in chapter 23, verse 17, and even through Saul himself in chapter 24, verse 20. Saul had said, surely you'll be king. We have to remember also that David had no reason to distrust God here. David has been a man who has seen God's hand of supernatural protection over his life, and he has seen it time and time again. His God has never failed him. He spared him from the clutches of a lion and a bear and even the the giant Goliath. He spared him from Saul's spear twice and and even from a, a sinister plot while David was still in Gibeah. He spared him from three envoys of soldiers who were sent to arrest him at Ramah. He he spared him from the the betrayal by the the Kelites and and twice by the Ziphites. He spared him from being overtaken by Saul multiple times in the wilderness, sometimes pinned down, trapped, with nowhere to run or go, and it looks like doom is sure. And yet God spared him. God rescued him every time. David had seen God's hand of protection over his life. And man, isn't that, isn't that true for us, beloved, as, as we look back upon our lives? It can be easy to, to be in the moment of temptation, to, to be in the moment of, of, of looking ahead to the unknown future and find ourselves fearful, but oftentimes we need to look backwards, don't we? <laughs> we need to look backwards and remind ourselves of, of our God, remind ourselves of the ways that he's always been true to his promises and his word, how he's brought us through every storm, how he's brought us through every temptation, how he's always fulfilled all of his promises to us. We have nothing in our God except a precedent for trust, right? Ever. And yet we, just like David, find ourselves tempted in the moments of difficulty and fear to doubt. David's rich history of faith and his rich history of God's faithfulness does not guarantee him victory in the future. He must live by faith. But instead, David, in a moment of weakness here, rather than speaking truth into his heart, he believes lies. And this very moment will set his life down a slippery slope, resulting in great long-term compromise and near-disastrous consequences for him. So believing the lie that God's protection will one day fail him, that's clearly a lie. It's in violation of the truths he himself knows. David hatches a plan based upon his own fleshly reasonings. He says... There's nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Now, this is, this is a wrong statement on so many levels, right? <laughs> There's nothing better for me. Really? Really, David? Nothing better for you? God has promised you the kingdom. <laughs> You're going to be king. That has already been determined by the sovereign God of this universe. And now all of a sudden, there's nothing better for you than to go into a neighboring kingdom. A kingdom which, by the way, is the sworn enemy of God and your own people. 
that's the only good that God would have for you? Do you see how lies work in our hearts? We start to believe one and it leads to another and it leads to another and it leads to another. (laughs) And all of those take us where? Away from what we know to be true about our God and away from what we know to be true about his word. David needed to interrupt his thinking here with truth. He failed. Now we can sympathize with David. Text reminds us in verses 2 through 4 that David had 600 men and their families to provide for. That's, that's a lot of mouths to feed. <laughs> you know, that's probably five, six times the number of people in this room right now that David had direct responsibility for. That's a lot of souls. That's a lot of mouths. That's a lot of lives. If they were to go hungry in the future, David would feel personally culpable as, as their leader and, and the one and, and the reason why they were in all this hot water to begin with. It was, it was David that Saul wanted dead, not these men. David could no doubt envision a future time when, when you know, if Saul were to overtake him and he would one day perish, all of these 600 men and, and their families would no doubt be slaughtered and David would perhaps have to watch this great massacre knowing that it was because of him. This was a heavy responsibility that David was feeling. This was a great weight. This was no small thing. Furthermore, he's got his wives and children there with him. He's got his own family. Man, family brings into our lives fears, doesn't it? (laughs) We're all living in the same culture that I'm living in today. We look at the future and it doesn't look as bright as maybe we've once thought, right? Look at our country and wonder about what will be the reality for our kids and grandkids and it can be easy to yield to sinful fear to forget our God to abandon his promises and to go look for some means of self-protection don't we do the same things <laughs> you ever had one of those mornings where you're, you're reading your, your Bible and you know you need your intake of God's word and somehow there's this gravitational pull towards your phone and your news feed <laughs> ever had that happen it's happening in those moments right fear in our hearts, (laughs) leading us to temptation, to want to find some measure of comfort. It's not sinful to read a news feed. I want to make that clear. But but we all understand the temptations we face, right? David was staring down the barrel here of potentially years, possibly even decades of hiding in caves, running for his life, trying desperately to provide for these men, finding desperately to eke out an existence for his family. This was no small thing for David. But he yields. He yields to the discouragement and despair, and he makes a decision driven by fear and unbelief rather than faith, and it is going to start a chain reaction here in his life that is going to start him down a dark and dangerous road. And that's what's scary about this, is that at first his plan seems to work. (laughs) Verse 4 tells us that when Saul heard that David was in Gath, he no longer searched for him. His plan appears to be working here. David is enjoying the passing pleasures of sin. The Bible tells us that there is passing pleasures in it, but they're passing, right? (laughs) They're quick-lived, and they ultimately, on the other side of them, come with chastening and consequences that's more than we bargained for. But he's enjoying the passing pleasures here. He's enjoying the comforts of Gath, but he doesn't realize that the noose is slowly tightening around his own neck. 
Beloved, that's the way it oftentimes is in our own lives as well, isn't it? We have to decide every moment whether we're going to live by faith or whether we're going to yield to sin. Whether we're going to choose the harder road of obedience. And beloved, it is the harder road, right? Scriptures make that clear. We don't come to the Christian life because it's this this easy life, right? In fact, it, it never ceases to amaze me of how Christ presented the gospel in the gospels, right? It was never this easy, wonderful, come and I'll solve all your problems type of thing. No, it was take up your cross, die to yourself daily, and follow after me, right? Foxes have holes. You know, I have no place to lay my head. Come and follow me. Paul says to, to, to Timothy, Timothy, suffer with me for the gospel, right? <laughs> Christ himself says to Paul from his ascended position in glory in heaven, he, he says of Paul, I'll show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. Christ warns his disciples, in this world you will have tribulation. And he tells them, they hated me, they'll also hate you. We don't take the Christian road, beloved, because it's the easier path. It's the harder road. But it's the road that if we believe God's word by faith, we know it's worth it, right? We know it's worth it. Every step, every challenge that that we may face, every time that we find ourselves in difficulty in this life, we get to look forward to not only how we'll see God's faithfulness in that moment and in this life, but we get to look forward to eternity. And beloved, we know where true fulfillment is in this life, and it's not in all the comforts of this world. It's in finding your security and your identity in Jesus Christ himself, right? And having that confidence as you look forward to the future. The road of obedience is oftentimes the harder road. The road of compromise is almost always the easier one. What we'll see in David's life here and what we're going to see in his life is going to be a warning to us, beloved. A warning to never let our guard down. A warning to not think that we can coast to victory in our spiritual lives. A warning to never trust in ourselves or in man, but rather to keep our trust fixed upon the promises of God. And that leads us to the second dive down this slippery slope of self-trust and sin, and that is a justification of greater sin. That's where it always leads. (laughs) David begins with a decision driven by a lack of faith, and that leads him to justifying greater measures of sin in his life. Look at verses 5 through 12. Then David said to Achish, If now I have found favor in your sight, let them give me a place in one of the cities in the country, that I may live there. For why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. The number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites and the Gerizites and the Amalekites, and, for they were inhabitants of the land from the ancient times, as you come to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. David attacked the land and did not leave a man or woman alive. And he took away the sheep and, and the cattle and the donkeys and the camels and the clothing. Then he returned and came to Achish. Now Achish said, Where have you made raid today? 
David said, against the Negev of Judah and against the Negev of the Jeremiahites and against the Negev of the Kenites. David did not leave a man or woman alive to bring to Gath, saying otherwise they will tell about us, saying, so has David done and so has been his practice all the time he has lived in the country of the Philistines. So Achish believed David, saying he has surely made himself odious among his people Israel. Therefore, he will become my servant forever. So we can see this is where a faithless decision leads us, beloved. Once you start down the sinful path of self-protection, it always demands greater and greater levels of compromise and therefore more elaborate ways to justify your actions and more sophisticated ways to appease your own conscience and cover over the truth. And that is exactly what we see in David's life right here. We have a saying around Grace Emanuel that I know didn't originate with us, and perhaps you guys say this or something similar, but it speaks of, it's a good summary, I should say, of what the scriptures teach about spiritual compromise. Sin always takes you farther than you want to go. It always keeps you longer than you want to stay, and at a price that's higher than you want to pay. <laughs> Isn't that true? I've seen it in our own lives. Oftentimes what starts as just a small compromise grows into something far bigger than you intended. And once we start down the path of self-trust, it's like starting a descent down a steep trail into a dark valley. The only way to pursue the payoff that you think the path offers you is to keep following the path deeper into the darkness. But the problem is that there is no payoff. Self-protection is like the proverbial carrot on a stick that keeps enticing you forward, but you never quite grasp the thing in which you pursue. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> All of those in this world building bomb shelters, stocking pantries, you know, loading up their armories with guns are some of the most fearful people, aren't they? <laughs> well... This is all exactly what we see happening in David's life. Once he gets to Philistia, he must find a way to be accepted there. And, and so David hatches a pretty elaborate scheme here. First, he figures out some way to convince Achish that he's not a spy nor a, a hostile military presence within Philistine borders. Certainly Achish would have wiped him out if he thought that. The text doesn't necessarily tell us for sure, but, but I, no doubt it took no small amount of David massaging the truth in order to gain this warm welcome from Achish. Probably involved David pledging his allegiance and his 600 men to the Philistine cause. Think about that. David pledging his allegiance to Philistia. Achish was probably compelled by the prospect of, of using David and his men as a mercenary group to carry out his dirty work, and, and David apparently agreed to this plan. After being received by Achish, the sophistication of David's sinister plan becomes more clear. This was, this was elaborate. This was far-reaching. This was, this was quite the web of lies that David had concocted to be able to protect himself here. He makes what at first seems like an innocent request in verse 5. Give me a place in one of the cities in the country. 
And he bathes this request in a very respectful plea, saying, if I have found favor in your sight, right? And then he even offers up some flattery to really sell it to Achish. She says, for why should your servant live in the royal city with you? In other words, David was saying something like this. I, a foreign dog, and not even worthy to live in your presence, O great king of the noble Philistines, send me and my men out to the outskirts and give us a country town where we can be where we belong, outside your royal presence. That's what David was saying. This is nothing short of deceptive flattery here by David. He knows full well that he's the anointed king of God's true people and that the Philistines are God's sworn enemies. They're pagans who have no right to even be in that land at all. It's God's land and it belongs to David and his people. Furthermore, this was all a part of an even grander deceptive plan for Achish at the hand of David. And we'll see that next. The, the king buys the flattery. He grants him his request. He gives him the town of Ziklag, a town which, if our geography is correct, it's about 20 miles south of Gath. If, if you remember Old Testament history, Gath was one of five major Philistine cities uh, uh, overseen by five major Philistine lords, all of whom essentially made up the, the rulership of Philistia. So Gath was an important city. This was a suburb about 20 miles south. And so this was just far enough outside of the, 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 the reach of the eyes of Achish that David wouldn't have to worry about him seeing what he was doing, right? Ziklag's east or, or west, excuse me, of the land of Judah and, and just east of the modern day Gaza Strip, which we all are pretty familiar with nowadays. At first glance, it seems like an innocent request by David, potentially even a godly one. Perhaps he, he is just separating himself from the pagans, seeking a place where he won't be influenced by their wickedness. Now, what we see in David's heart here becomes clear is nothing short of a full-scale manipulation. We find out as the story unfolds that his aim is to isolate himself from accountability. He does this in order to deceive Achish for all for the purposes of trying to justify his sinful actions in his own conscience. I believe that's what's happening here. David is wrestling with his own conscience. He, he knows that what he's doing is wrong, and so he's trying to find some way to appease his conscience here. Verse 8 tells us that after he went to Ziklag, David started to make raids upon the Geshurites and the Gerizites and the Amalekites. No doubt the arrangement that David made with Achish was that he and his men would become Philistine henchmen to, to raid the surrounding villages and bring back the spoils to Achish. Well, what's important to notice here is that all three of these people groups that David was raiding have one thing in common. One thing. They are not Israelites. <laughs> They're not Jewish communities. They're actually enemies of Israel. Or pagans. And you may say, well, wait a minute, isn't that good? And perhaps in one respect, I guess we could say so. I think this shows that, that David had not entirely abandoned his convictions and his beliefs about who he was and who God's true people were. And even that causes us to take a moment of pause and reflect on some things that happen in our hearts. Isn't it amazing? How we can continue in, in our basic understanding of God, our basic understanding of the scriptures and how he's operating in the world, and yet be making at the same time great 
compromise in the practicalities of life and our applications of those things. And that's what we're seeing in David's life here. He may not have abandoned his perspective of who he was or who his God was, but he was in the midst of incredible compromise. This is no noble pursuit on David's part. It says in verse 10 that David would lie to Achish by telling him that he he raided against Judah and the Jeremiahites and the Kenites. All three of those are Israelite territories. So David is literally lying through his teeth here, proactively and purposefully. And the reason becomes clear in verse 12, because he wanted Achish to think that he was now loyal to Philistia and not Israel. This was his plan all along. When we get down there to Ziklag, when we get outside of the the eye of Achish so that he won't be able to see where we're going, where we're coming from, he won't be able to see what we're bringing back. And then that way I can hatch this elaborate lie so that he'll believe that I've betrayed my people and he'll believe that I'm loyal to him. And therefore what? I'll be safe and secure from what I'm afraid of. It's proactively deceiving and manipulating all the while, appeasing and searing his conscience by telling himself that what he was doing was okay because, hey, after all, I'm destroying God's enemies. In fact, maybe God would even be pleased with me, perhaps David thought, right? David continues his descent into greater and greater sin here as it gets even more sinister in his heart. It says in verse 11 that David did not leave a man or woman alive to bring to Gath, saying, otherwise they will tell about us. Man, what do we see? David is here slaughtering entire towns full of men, women, and children, not because God had told him to, not because they were an imminent threat to him or God's people, but simply to protect his own neck by ensuring that there was no witnesses to expose his lies. That was his motivation. Pretty, pretty wicked, right? This is a murderous, merciless, deceiving rampage across the countryside by David here. Man, that's jarring for us, isn't it? Wait a minute, this is David. (laughs) This is a man after God's own heart. This is that young shepherd boy who didn't even think himself worthy to show up with his other brothers for for the anointing of the next king because surely it wasn't going to be him. This was the young boy who stood up in the face of Goliath and was willing to trust God and deliver that incredible speech to the face of this giant, showing great courage and faith and confidence. A man after God's own heart, starting down the road of unbelief, choosing to not trust God in the face of his fears. Beloved, no matter how great you are, no matter how great God's plans may be, you can find yourself in the same position. How much sin one little faithless decision by David has led to here. I wonder sometimes if David could have just woken up in the middle of that. You know how every once in a while you'll have kind of one of those spiritual wake-ups where it's like you're going down a path and it's wrong and you're making compromise and you're justifying and appeasing your conscience and all of a sudden you wake up and you're like, what what, what in the world? (laughs) What am I doing? God in his grace, you know, takes the scales off your eyes and you can suddenly see. And I think, man, if David would have been able to see There he was, living in the midst of and serving God's sworn enemies, 
leading in a massive deception, including constant lies and great cover-ups. He was massacring entire villages, not to obey God, but to protect himself and in order to line the pockets of a wicked king. And he was leading 600 other men to do the same. What incredible depths David had plunged to, and man, beloved, this should serve as a warning to us. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, speaks of the way that sin progresses in our life, and it's said there that it progresses with greediness. Sin is always greedy. It's never content. It always wants more. I've seen men in the course of heading down a path of sin betray their wife and their family, something they, they themselves said they would never do. I've seen parents lie, cheat, and steal from their own children. Seen people go back to their, their bondage to sub- substance abuse despite the heavy consequences it's already brought upon their lives. I've seen women abandon their own children. I, others have walked away from faithful churches. I've seen some even end up in prison, and I've seen others who I've counseled to who have even go, gone so far as to commit murder. And it all began with a compromise. Don't miss the statement in verse 7, beloved. It says that David lived in this season of sin and evil for one year and four months. Sixteen months of his life. year and a half almost. Sin can hold us in its grips for a long time. Perhaps what is the scariest reality of all in this story is the fact that for a season we can deceive ourselves into believing that it's actually working. That we're actually getting away with it. And David's plan seems to be here. He hasn't been caught. Achish seems to have bought it, hook, line, and sinker. But beloved, it's times like that that we have to remind ourselves of what we know to be true from God's word of these warnings. Galatians 6, 7, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sin will find you out. Hosea chapter 8, verse 7 tells us that if we sow the wind, we will reap the whirlwind, Right? David's example here is going to serve as a chilling reminder not to believe the lie that we can get away with it. His sin is about to catch up with him here as it always does. And that leads us to our third dive down this slippery slope of self-trust, and that is a realization of inescapable consequences. David realizes these consequences and he can't escape it. No more manipulating, no more deceiving, no more way out. The noose has tightened around his neck and it's reached critical mass. Proverbs twenty six twenty seven says, He who digs a pit falls into it, and he who rolls a stone, it will come back on him. Our sin always backfires. <laughs> the farther up the hill you roll that rock, the more destruction and devastation it has as it rolls back on you. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 22, speaks of where sin always leads in this way. It says, His own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held by the cords of his sin. And the web's of deceit and unbelief that we, le- that we weave eventually form bonds around our hands and feet and the noose around our own neck, Proverbs 5 would say. And why is that, beloved? Why does it always lead there? Well, Proverbs 5:21, For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. Sovereign, holy 
God of the universe sitting on his throne and looking down upon his servant, David. Every step he takes. <laughs> it's a scary thought, isn't it? should be scary. The Bible actually says that it is the fear of God that causes us to turn away from evil. And we ought rightly to fear him. Well, you can see what happens in chapter 28, verse 1 and 2. Now it came about in those days that the Philistines gathered their armed camps for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Know assuredly that you will go out with me in the camp, you and your men. David said to Achish, Very well. You shall know what your servant can do. So Achish said to David, Very well. I will make you my bodyguard for life. And man, the way those verses start out are just, they're chilling when you think about it. Now it came about in those days. <laughs> What's happening here, beloved? The sovereign hand of God is working within the circumstances to expose to David the wickedness and evil of his actions and to show him where it leads. He's bringing chastening and consequences of a type that David now can't wiggle out of. It says the Philistines gathered, and it said that they gathered in order to fight against Israel. <laughs> Alarm bells should be going off in our mind right now for David. Wait a minute, what, where did you find yourself? What are you about to do? <laughs> You're going to go to war against God's people. The very people who you've been anointed by God to be their future king. You know, I'm no political genius, but I don't think that's going to be good for your campaign right? This is wreckage. This is the abandonment of everything that um, David had been promised by God. He goes to war in the Philistine ranks. It's over for David and Israel. He's done. David's plan that he hatched has been executed to perfection to such perfection that he even deceived Achish to the point where Achish is willing to take him to battle against Israel. And what, what was that? God's plan all along. <laughs> He'll allow us to go down that path, won't he? He'll allow us. We think we're self-protecting ourselves. In all actuality, we're exposing ourselves to the greatest danger we possibly could. David's between a rock and a hard place here. He stays loyal to Achish, then he'll have to actually fight against and kill his own countrymen, and his future of their as being their king is utterly abandoned. No hope. But if he goes the other way and chooses to abandon Achish, then his true allegiance will be proven, his mask of hypocrisy will be shattered, and now he would not only have King Saul hunting for his life, but also King Achish. He would have nowhere to go, nowhere to protect himself. All of this web of lies that started him down this path so that he wouldn't have to be afraid of all these things. Now his worst fear is he'd be in a worse spot than he started, right? His sin had truly found him out. And he was seeing where all this self-protection would lead. And man, you have to wonder what was going on in David's mind. You know, he plays it pretty cool here. David, by this point, had become a pretty trained deceiver, right? Very well. You shall know what your servant will do or can do. It's a vague statement, right, that really commits him to nothing. What might your servant do? I don't know. Will he fight with Israel? 
Will he turn on Achish and fight against uh, the, the, the Philistines? Or will he fight with Achish and move forward against Israel? I don't know. And remember, David's heading down the path of compromise here. He maybe doesn't even know what he'll do. Perhaps it's only God who knew what David would do and knew what he needed to be protected from. This was either going to be betrayal and deception against Achish, or David would find himself in a place where he had been so hardened by the last 16 months of his own lies and self-protection and so entrenched in sinful fear that he might actually go to war against his own people. We just don't know. I think David must have been a wreck. His conscience internally had to be screaming at him. Fear had to be overwhelming him. We need to talk, obviously, about where this story ends, and I'll give a little summary. But before we do, beloved, I want to talk for a minute about why this story is here in God's Word. (laughs) Why do we have it here? Why do we talk about it on a Sunday morning? Why did God place this here? Well, it's here so that we will learn from David's mistakes, so that we won't fall into the same trap, so that we will fear God and hate sin, so that we won't start down that slippery slope of self-trust. So beware, beloved. Beware of even the seemingly small decisions that lack faith. Beware of the, the subtle trajectory shifts in your life that begin in those seasons of life of temptation, and that will lead to a dark valley of chastening and consequences from the hand of God. So how do we protect ourselves from all this? I came up with a few takeaways that I want to give to you here. First of all, takeaway number one of how we protect ourselves from this. Don't let yesterday's victories lull you to sleep in today's battles. Don't take a victory lap. (laughs) When you see God be faithful, when you face down temptation, here's what we need to think about as as believers. Give praise and thanks to God. Know that that wasn't me. That was only his strength. I'm going to give him all the glory, and I'm going to get back in the saddle, get my armor back on, and be ready for the next onslaught because that's what I can expect in this life, right? (laughs) That's what I can expect in this world. And God will give me the resources for the next one and the next one and the one after that, but I've got to choose to put that armor on. Don't let yesterday's victories lull you to sleep in today's battles and assume that, that you've, you've won. Secondly, be on your guard against sinful fear. Man, isn't this where it all started? David feared the future, right? And he chose a sinful path in response to his fear. And by the way, isn't that what always makes sinful fear sinful? Fear in and of itself is is just an emotion. It's a natural human emotion, and we have it at times. It's it's not really an issue that we're afraid of something. It's a matter of how we respond to it. Do we respond to it with sin? Do we become anxious and worried? Do we manipulate? Do we become angry? Do we trust in some earthly means of protection? All are forms of sinful fear. So, So we have to ask ourselves, what am I afraid of? You know what David was afraid of? I don't think any of us are being chased by Saul or we probably wouldn't be sitting here, you know, relaxing in a pew this morning, right? But we all have fears, don't we? What are you afraid of, beloved? Where are the potential temptations in your own life? What circumstances do you have to meet with great faith? 
By the way, that type of faith is required over time. Perseverance and endurance in, in the scriptures, you know what those are? Faith plus time. That's what it is. You put those two things together, you mix them up in a blender, and out comes perseverance and endurance, right? <laughs> faith plus time. It's faith over time. It's consistently responding to all the circumstances in life as they come at you in every season of life with faith. That's what endurance is. Perseverance. Thirdly, keep your mind constantly renewed upon the truth. David chose to believe lies, right? Didn't he? Right at the very beginning? Surely Saul will kill me. What are you talking about, David? God's already said he's going to make you king. (laughs) And rip the kingdom from Saul. Man, we need our minds constantly reminded and, and constantly renewed by the truth. David, let the promises and commands of God fade from his mind. This just reminds us how dependent we are upon, the word, upon God's word every moment. This is why we come every Sunday, isn't it? Sunday after Sunday. Why? Because we need a fresh reminder of God's word, of the, the ways that we have to live by faith. This is why you open your Bibles on your own at home, not to be able to check off your little reading list, right? <laughs> Because you know how desperately you're going to need God's word and and a renewing of your mind that comes through it for today's challenges, right? Keep your mind constantly renewed by truth. Fourthly, keep a close watch on your conscience. 1 Timothy 1.19, it's appropriate to remember what Paul says there in light of David's failure here. He says that those who reject a good conscience suffer shipwreck in regards to their faith. David's in the middle of shipwreck here, right? (laughs) So what do we do? Keep a close watch on our conscience. We keep short accounts with God. You know what God will be to those who keep short accounts? Compassionate. I wonder what would have happened for David. What if after verse 1, right? I'll perish one day at the hand of Saul. If the very next words out of David's mouth were to say, God, that's a lie, and I just believed it. Forgive me, right? And he ran to the Lord. What what would have happened? None of chapter 27, right? (laughs) None of it. So what do we need to do, beloved man? You could insert that statement at any point here in chapter 27, and I think it would have taken David down a different path, right? Keep short accounts. Run to the Lord. He's a compassionate, merciful God. He loves to forgive. He loves to, to restore. Fear him and run to him in repentance and faith at the first moment of compromise. Don't fall into self-pity that starts to avoid him. Fifthly, cultivate a fear of God that believes your sin will find you out. I already mentioned it, but Proverbs 16.6, by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil, beloved. David, even in all of his elaborate, well-laid plan, could not anticipate what God would do so that his sin would find him out. Beloved, you serve a God who's far bigger and far smarter. (laughs) Don't test him. Don't mock him. Fear him. It's a right response by a believer. And sixthly, and it's important to end here, thank God for his mercy, but never presume upon it. (laughs) The way this story ends, I told you I'd give you an explanation. If you want the full explanation, you can read chapter 29 for yourself this afternoon. But the way this story ends is essentially God showing incredible mercy upon David. The other four rulers of the Philistines come to the battle lines. They are indignant at the thought of allowing David to fight alongside him. They'll have nothing to do with it. And David essentially gets a get-out-of-jail-free card. (laughs) 
handed to him by God. But listen, beloved, what did God do in David's life? He brought him right up to the cliff edge. He had him so that he was leaning right over it, and the only rope that was holding him from falling down into that pit was a rope that God himself held, the very God who he'd just been betraying. Not a position you want to put yourself in. And God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. The general order of God in this world, beloved, is to let us feel the consequences for our own sin. And David has other circumstances in his life where he did realize the full consequences. Thank God for his mercy. And I can look back and see times when he was merciful. Can't you? In your own life, you're like, man, Lord, you could have made that a lot worse for me. <laughs> Man, Lord, I could have went down that path and had you not stood in the way and had you not pulled me back, who knows where I would have ended up. Thank him for his mercy, but beloved, do not presume upon it. Don't test God. That's what David did here. He tested God through a lack of faith and a willingness to compromise. We need to trust him, don't we? We need to run to him and we need to live by faith. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, it is with great um, thankfulness that we come to you. Thankfulness that you give us warnings like this in Scripture. Reminders that we need, Lord. Reminders apart from which we would make the same mistakes David made and we would go down the same paths. But God, you in your grace and your mercy, in your kindness, you give us your word to guide and direct us. And Lord, you give us these warnings. God, I pray that we would be those who live by faith and not fear. Pray that we would believe truth and not lies. Pray, God, that we would be those who repent of sin early and quick and find compassion that you willingly give and love to offer and find mercy from your hands rather than unnecessary chastening. God, I pray that we would fear you and turn from evil. Thank you for your grace to us this morning. Thank you for the body of Christ. Thank you for forgiveness that comes through the blood of Christ. And thank you, Lord, that we can stand this morning and worship you even in this song. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.